Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we will resume our exploration of Al-Ma'mun's long and prosperous reign. Luckily, there is plenty of information on his time in charge, from flattering narrations about the man to material describing the burgeoning intellectual scene in the Ummah, much of it encouraged by the Caliph himself. Our sources only stop being so complimentary when the subject turns to matters of faith. Al-Ma'mun's theological opinions led to some grumbling early in his career, but over the course of several years, opposition snowballed into a whole lot more as both the Caliph and his detractors escalated their denunciations of one another. Episode 59 Faith and Philosophy Very few caliphs enjoyed a reign as long as Al-Ma'mun's. At almost 20 years, he's in an elite club of six, with three Umayyads, Muawiyah, Abdul Malik, and Hisham, and his own father and great-grandfather, Al-Rashid and Al-Mansur, respectively. The stability engendered by these distinguished leaders allowed the Ummah to flourish in manifold ways, leading to fascinating social developments within the caliphate. Although these topics are not strictly related to our main objective of charting the Ummah's political fortunes, it is still worth taking some time to cover them, as they often provide a more well-rounded impression of how a caliph is remembered in Arab history, helping us assess their overall effectiveness. This is typically the goal when I summarize superfluous narrations, but there's good reason to give these accounts more space than usual today. Not only does such material represent a substantial chunk of Al-Ma'mun's legacy, but it also goes on to have a lasting, indelible impact on Arab history, and arguably on Islam as well. If you've been tuning into this show for a while, then first off, thank you. But my point is you'd know how careful I try to be when our discussion veers into the religious. There's no escaping it this time. And although doctrinal disputes will be our centerpiece for the day, we'll start by touching on other topics first. This works well chronologically, since tensions didn't flare up until the last few years of Al-Ma'mun's reign, so in a way it'll give us a better understanding of the evolution of the public's view of the Caliph. Stuff we find about him at the beginning, at least after his return to Baghdad, is starry-eyed and fawning, but by the end of his reign, some narrations portray the caliph as public enemy number one. Even though they're ideologically motivated and show overt bias, it is still a dizzying shift in how he's portrayed. Don't be misled by the abrupt change. Al-Ma'mun did not suffer any sort of fall from grace. He was simply yet another victim of bad historiography. As we've noted repeatedly by now, there is often a gulf between the way a caliph is portrayed in our sources and their actual track records. While state propaganda surely plays a role here, the historical distortions are largely due to the many pitfalls inherent in oral transmission. Until the Arabs started writing their history down, 
their recollections were fundamentally retrospective, using their present as a yardstick to measure the past. Furthermore, a narrator's impressions of any given caliph overwhelmingly stemmed from how they experienced his reign. Al-Mahdi is a good example to take. He lived opulently and spent most of his time drinking among his harem of songstresses, yet he is described as a pious and benevolent caliph. Why? Well, the inexhaustible prosperity of the caliphate he inherited from his illustrious father ensured that the ummah remembered him positively. When these histories were being written down about a century later, his time in charge looked like the halcyon days of a lapsed golden age. It didn't matter that corruption thrived due to his inattentive administration. The wealth accumulated by many of his officials and commanders was instead cited as proof of al-Mahdi's selflessness and generosity. When it comes to al-Ma'mun, we find four virtues regularly attributed to him in various narrations. Mercy, responsibility, piety, and a love of knowledge. His mercy is praised repeatedly following his return to Baghdad as he displayed a remarkably forgiving attitude towards those who had shunned him as a youth or plotted against him during the fitna. Later accounts highlight his compassionate treatment of the prisoners taken during the campaigns he led against the Byzantine Empire. He typically bought the captives from his men, gave them some money to make their way home, and set them free. Al-Ma'mun's sense of responsibility comes out in many narrations that commend his dedication to his office. He is described as a serious and competent administrator, one who involved himself in the details of his bureaucracy. In this, he was more like his great-grandfather Al-Mansur than his father Harun al-Rashid, who had relied on the Baramika to run the state on his behalf. He did kind of start out like his dad, but the mess al-Ma'mun found himself in after he discovered that his wazir, al-Fadl ibn Sahil, had been keeping him in the dark, seems to have taught him a valuable lesson. He still kept advisors to delegate affairs to, but by and large, he was vigilant about his own participation in all aspects of government. Of all his virtues, the caliph's love and pursuit of knowledge is the one most amply supported, and we seriously could have had an entire episode about the caliph's impact on the intellectual growth of the ummah. A dedication to science and philosophy dominates his legacy to such an extent that many claim he was the caliph to establish Bayt al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom, a sort of grand library or research center in the caliphate. While there's little evidence of that, there was certainly far more academic effort during his reign than any time before. I couldn't really pinpoint who built the House of Wisdom, but from what I can tell it evolved out of the imperial court over time. Even the very first dynastic caliph, Muawiyah, was said to have kept a large library in his palace in Damascus, but it is only mentioned in passing. His grandson, Khalid ibn Yazid, seems to have had a thirst for knowledge, and he added many Greek translations during Umayyad times. The next mention of an imperial library doesn't come until al-Mansur was in charge, and the founder of Baghdad made sure to include an impressive space for books when designing his perfect round city. Access was restricted at first, but through his patronage of the sciences, al-Mansur's grandson, Harun al-Rashid, expanded its role from a mere repository of knowledge to an active hub of intellectual activity, 
'Twas not quite a school or university, but somewhere for learned men of renown to pursue their studies using state resources. So the House of Wisdom existed during the reign of the Caliph's father, and although Al-Ma'mun had to rebuild most of the capital after the ruinous fitna, we can't rightly say he founded the institution. His abiding interest went a long way towards resurrecting it, though, and it soon surpassed its former glory. It was during his reign that Ibn Hisham read and reworked the story of the Prophet's lifetime, first put together by Ibn Ishaq for Al-Mansur. Although the histories we're using as our primary sources came many decades later, those that preceded them have sadly been lost to us, and what little we know of them survives as fragments quoted in later works. But history was hardly Al-Ma'mun's chief interest. That one is a toss-up between philosophy and astronomy. Without a doubt, his biggest contribution to the Ummah's knowledge base was his sponsoring of the Greco-Arabic translation movement. Unlike his predecessors, the well-read and inquisitive Al-Ma'mun recognized how much value there was in foreign wisdom. He sent scholars to seek out promising scientific and literary works so they could be translated into Arabic back in Baghdad. Even his treaties with the Byzantine emperor Theophilus included stipulations that important books would be regularly forwarded to the caliphate. One of the best-known stories about Al-Ma'mun is that he was visited by Aristotle in a dream, who commended his devotion to knowledge and advised him on which subjects to prioritize for translation. The specter said to start with works that invigorated the mind, mathematics, logic, and astronomy, then those useful for lawmaking like ethics and politics, and to end with entertaining books that would be enjoyed by a wide audience and thus encourage literacy. It's difficult to overstate how important Al-Ma'mun's patronage was for both Arab and human knowledge. His efforts not only energized the Ummah's intellectual life, but on top of that, some Greek works only survived through their Arabic translations. Among the most important of those are medical writings of Galen, the celebrated classical physician from the 2nd century, and many books on astronomy, a favorite subject of the caliphs. One narration tells us that he was so fascinated by Eratosthenes' experiment for measuring the circumference of the earth that he tasked a team of scientists with validating its results. Their work was carried out in the flat deserts of Iraq, and they supported earlier Greek estimates, coming within a few hundred miles of the correct answer. For his dedication to the field, mankind has rewarded Al-Ma'mun by naming a lunar crater after him though the well-meaning scientists botched his name and title a bit, ultimately dedicating it to Almanon, whom they dubbed a Persian astronomer. I've left piety until the end, not because it plays a big part in Al-Ma'mun's legacy, but because I want to use it to segue into our doctrinal discussion. Piety can mean different things in different contexts. When it comes to our historical sources, it barely means anything at all. As our earlier example of al-Mahdi suggests, when oral narrations call a caliph pious, all they meant was that the ummah prospered during his time in charge. Al-Ma'mun's reign was certainly prosperous, and we have some financial records to prove it. Check out the show's website for graphs on tax revenue from the caliphate's many provinces.
things get more complicated when we consider the term more literally, and piety can quickly become problematic. Although it is roundly praised as a virtue, it is clear that the umba had a preference for the performative over the personal. Harun al-Rashid and Omar ibn Abdul Aziz were both lauded for their devotion to the faith. But al-Rashid's repeated leading of the pilgrimage and summer raids against the Byzantines is celebrated as exemplary conduct, while Omar's decree, relieving converts of the poll tax because all Muslims were equal in the eyes of God, infuriated his power base and was swiftly reversed by his successor. I don't want to muddle things by repeatedly bringing up previous caliphs. My point is that the Ummah loved describing its popular leaders as pious. It had absolutely nothing to do with their character and no bearing on how the people actually wanted to be ruled. Al-Ma'mun was unquestionably pious. He was as dedicated a Muslim as he was a civil servant. He upheld Islam's tenets and practices and is said to have memorized the Qur'an, which isn't surprising for the bookish caliph. This was all fine, of course. It only became a problem when his views clashed with popular opinion, and it was then that the sincerity of his faith left him unbending in the face of opposition. The earliest example of how al-Ma'mun's beliefs were rejected by the Ummah is arguably more political than religious. His summoning of the Hashemite Ali al-Rada to Khurasan and Ali's subsequent designation as heir apparent alienated the Abbasids, leading to an uproar in Iraq and beyond. I think this decision came from a place of faith, that al-Ma'mun truly believed the devout Ali was more fit to be caliph because he was such an impeccable Muslim. Although that never came to pass, the caliph remained far better disposed towards the Hashemites than any of his predecessors, and he repeatedly expressed his admiration of Ali bin Abi Talib and lamented his many misfortunes. He invited Hashemites to argue the case for their cause at his court, and even appointed one as governor to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, following his return to Baghdad. His attitude irked many beyond his own clansmen, and some narrations unkindly interpret his endorsements of Ali ibn Abi Talib as suggestions that none of the Ummah's other leaders had been legitimate. These exaggerations of al-Ma'mun's closeness to the Hashemites are quite misleading, and it would be wrong to assume that he was happy to just hand them the caliphate. Ali al-Rida was an exceptional individual, a paragon of Islamic virtue worthy of his noble ancestry, but the rest of the clan didn't impress the caliph all that much. For example, the Hashemite in charge of Mecca and Medina failed to bring a meaningful peace to the region, and another one rallied the Yemenis against their sitting governor, threatening to break off from the caliphate altogether. Al-Ma'mun's response was brutally effective, and it showed that he had no problem going to war against them. He gave a trusted Umayyad command of a Khurasani army and tasked him with pacifying the peninsula's southernmost province. Muhammad ibn Ziyad regarded the Hashemites as eternal enemies, and his zeal for vengeance helped him triumph over the renegade tribes that supported them. The next year, the caliph officially made him governor of Yemen he would go on to hold that position for a whopping 40 years. During that time, he built his own round city to use as a provincial capital 
and prepared his sons to take over for him. These details hint that Yemen was more like an independent dynasty than a province, and although Muhammad ibn Ziyad always forwarded tax revenues to Baghdad, his son would eventually withhold them and merely mention the Abbasid Caliph's name in Friday prayers. It is interesting that this new Ziyadid dynasty marks the second time a Abbasid province was given away to a trusted commander in order to ward off Hashemite advances, only for it to break away in their name instead. But Al-Ma'mun's sympathy for the Hashemites was not his chief source of friction with the public. It is finally time to unpack the controversy that would mar this great caliph's legacy. Our sources are quite unhelpful in this endeavor, as they're addressing an audience steeped in its own particular mix of definitions and distinctions, ones that are difficult to make sense of today. For example, this whole affair is remembered as a dispute over whether the Qur'an was eternal in and of itself, or was the creation of an eternal god. If that sounds impenetrably obscure, then I assure you, you are not alone. And my task for the rest of this episode is to try and explain it in more relatable terms. By this point in Islam's history, there were two main kinds of intellectual approaches to the subject of religion. The first was the juridical. There were multiple schools of thought on how to use revelation to arbitrate between people the way the Prophet once had. To become a judge, one had to attend these and study under a religious scholar who had specialized in the subject by having studied under an older master himself, and so on. These schools were thus named after the men who popularized their specific methods of arriving at legal truth. They coexisted peacefully with one another, and it was left up to claimants to agree what kind of judge to go to. While there was a greater diversity of views back then, Orthodox Sunni Islam recognizes four of these schools today, while Shia traditions almost exclusively rely on a single one. This legalistic approach to religion is respectfully referred to as the sciences of Islam. The other was simply called kalam, which translates as speech or talk. It's nowhere near as distinguished a name, but that's probably just to emphasize its rhetorical or speculative nature. These were the early Islamic equivalent of the various schools which flourished in Athens during its classical period. Basically, Kalam schools debated religion's theoretical framework, so things like free will, or whether sin cancels out faith. Their practitioners would give speeches or spar verbally in public, something well suited to the largely illiterate ummah. Although violence between them was practically unheard of, their discussions weren't always civil, and opposing schools would sometimes denounce one another as heretical. Their disagreements were entirely philosophical, however, and the schools didn't really endorse separate practices, so their squabbles never led to any splits within the community. The Kalam schools provided a platform for original thinkers and skilled orators, and the major ones became associated with the towns and cities where they dominated. So now on to how Al-Ma'mun fits into all this. Well, we've already covered how interested the caliph was in all things intellectual, 
so it is no surprise that he delighted in having the many schools present their takes on the various subjects they liked to pontificate on. He held so many debates for them at his court that some narrations claim he was trying to help them achieve concord. Over time, the caliph became enamored with one in particular, the Mu'tazilite school. It's really no wonder that he found them compelling, as the Mu'tazilites were the most rationalist of the bunch. While the tradition was still in its infancy and had yet to fully develop, its speakers cited truths from Greek and Indian sources and issued pietistic flourishes for sound argumentation. In short, they were his kind of people, and Al-Ma'mun came to hire many of them into his administration, especially as judges. Up until Al-Mansur's time, judges had been considered part of a governor's retinue, but he centralized that decision-making, and ever since then the royal court in Baghdad decided appointments and dismissals. Harun al-Rashid later contrived the position Qadi al-Qudat, or judge of judges, a sort of justice secretary responsible for managing the whole operation. So al-Ma'mun had significant control over the judiciary of his caliphate. The longer his preference for the Mu'tazilites persisted, the more its impact was felt, and the school began to draw fire over its less popular stances. The worst detractors weren't even from rival schools. They were populist religious scholars who grew their followings by presenting themselves as fierce defenders of orthodoxy. Their attacks on the Mu'tazilites were plainly in bad faith, and they often intentionally misrepresented their views to make them easier targets. For example, one of the cornerstones of Mu'tazilite philosophy is the justice of creation, from which they inferred that mankind must have been endowed with untrammeled free will so as to be able to earn heaven or deserve hell. This was derided as a claim that God was powerless to affect human choices, with the attendant outrage, of course. The Mu'tazilites also shared Al-Ma'mun's views on Ali bin Abi Talib and the first fitna, stances which their critics condemned as slanderous insults directed at the legacy of all other caliphs, especially the rightly guided pre-dynastic ones. While it's frustrating to read about the disingenuous attacks levied against the Mu'tazilites, all these examples pale in comparison to what happened after 828. That was the year in which it became known that Al-Ma'mun subscribed to the idea that the Qur'an was created, as in that the word of God was revealed to the Prophet in response to the various events and circumstances he faced during his lifetime. Such a position, while argumentatively unimpeachable, offered endless opportunities for rhetorical invective. All its opponents had to do was wax poetic about how such a view belittled the exalted Qur'an, which, as the word of God, was inseparable from him and therefore co-eternal. This nebulous, theoretical distinction somehow became a lightning rod for criticism and condemnation. It's hard to say with any certainty what Al-Ma'mun's reaction was to this outcry. Some suggest he was taken aback, while others that he didn't really pay it much heed. Over the next few years, the tension just continued to build, as the caliph's detractors grew more belligerent when they realized it was a good way of garnering public attention. About four years into this, in late 832 or early 833, 
the caliph sent his governor of Baghdad a letter while he was out campaigning against Theophilus of the Byzantines. It read that al-Ma'mun considered it one of his duties to uphold Islam's best aspects and to suppress those who pervert it. He went on to say that he found the most vocal critics of the Qur'an's createdness to be by far the most hypocritical, and that they were irresponsibly inflaming popular sentiment for no reason beyond personal ambition. He ordered the governor to gather all the judges in his employ and to ask them where they stood on the issue. They had to answer a couple questions about their views, and anyone who insisted that the Qur'an was eternal was to be fired. Everyone else had to sign their name onto a document asserting they believed in the Qur'an's createdness. This policy was carried out immediately, and it met with remarkably little resistance. Most judges already agreed with the caliph on this matter, and those who had not picked a side one way or another had no problem supporting the reasonable position. One account says that seven judges resisted at first, but when summoned to meet the governor in person, they quickly folded. But these developments did not sit well with the firebrand preachers who agitated against officially supported theological positions, and about 30 of them were interviewed on their views on the subject. The reports are maddening, and these guys pathetically tried to evade engaging with the question. Here's an example, but I'm playing both sides. Is the Qur'an created? It is the word of God. I didn't ask that. Is it created? God created everything. And is the Qur'an a thing? Yes, but nobody created it. And so on. In some discussions, the scholar would try to cite scripture that suggested the Qur'an was eternal, but there are more direct examples of it being created, like where it says, quote, we created this Qur'an for you. Anyway, we're getting pulled a little into the weeds here. Basically, everyone who had legal authority agreed with the caliph, and those he didn't ask resisted bitterly, as if their opinions mattered. When al-Ma'mun heard about the holdouts who continued to malign his latest policy, he doubled down and put the most prominent of them on blast. His public letter was such a baller move by the caliph that I'm just going to let their humiliation echo through the ages. Ziyal ibn al-Haytham shamelessly robbed the food and grain stores of Anbar. Fadl ibn Ghanim embezzled Egyptian taxes and would profess anything for the right price. Fadl ibn Farhan defrauded a rich devotee named Abdul Rahman ibn Ishaq. Muhammad ibn Hatim and Abu Nuh should issue fewer religious opinions and focus on concealing their true careers as loan sharks. Sa'ad Wayh al-Wasiti would happily make up any narration about the Prophet if he thought it would win him more followers. Al-Ma'mun's point is clear. It was brazen of these men to even pretend that they were qualified to weigh in in defense of orthodoxy. Talk about shots fired. Don't worry, we're not supposed to know who any of these people are. I just got a little overexcited because we don't usually find this kind of explosive material in our sources. After this letter was read out, we hear that only four holdouts remained. After they were summoned by the governor, that number came down to two, Ahmad ibn Hanbal and Muhammad ibn Nuh. This is the first time we hear about claims of torture. Nothing major, but the four were kept chained in irons overnight between interviews. The final pair of dissenters 
were forwarded to Al-Ma'mun on the front lines, but their journey ended in Raqqa after news of the caliph's passing in faraway Tarsus spread throughout the realm. Even after relaying the affair in detail, it is still difficult to understand how it became such a big deal. Al-Ma'mun basically liked one Kalam school more than the rest, hired from its adherents, and went on to support some of their stances. While I agree that he overreacted to the venomous slander his stances provoked, religious tests were limited to judges who worked for the state, and only occurred in the last year of the caliph's two-decade reign. Why then are they represented so dramatically in our sources? Well, to answer that, one has to consider the eventual fate of this state policy and the Mu'tazilite school. Al-Ma'mun's successors continued his support for the doctrine of createdness, and over time the interference got more stringent and inquisition-like. It was finally abandoned after 18 years, a retreat that our sources sensationalize as the state bowing out of God's business after being heroically rebuffed by the pious Ummah. Our histories unfairly extend this triumphalism to Al-Ma'mun's time, with some even calling his death divine intervention precipitated by his persecution of the two scholars that were being sent his way. Remember how I said that Sunni orthodoxy accepts four legal schools today? Well, one of them is the Hanbali school, founded by Ahmad ibn Hanbal, one of the two dissenters that were en route to Al-Ma'mun when he passed away. Ibn Hanbal greatly capitalized on his good fortune, and he spent the rest of his days railing against the Mu'tazilites. His vitriol was so effective that scholars who had accepted the createdness of the Qur'an came to be looked upon as sellouts who lacked the backbone to stand up for the faith. Things swung so far in the other direction that it became dangerous to identify with the Mu'tazilites in the 10th century, and by the 11th, professing a belief in the Qur'an's createdness was punishable by death. The elimination of the Mu'tazilite school represents an unfortunate turning point in the Ummah's intellectual history, one that led to appalling developments down the line. Today, the Hanbali legal tradition is the most conservative of the four accepted by Orthodox Sunni Islam, and it is also favored by extremists, because it is the easiest to abuse in order to shroud their most violent positions with a semblance of religious justification. That's a discussion I'd rather avoid, as it gets nuanced and complicated, but I'll post a link to an excellent article which succinctly describes the consequences of the struggle between the Mu'tazilite and Hanbali creeds on this episode's page on thecaliphs.com. Let's end our coverage of this vague and touchy subject here. Next time, we'll round out our discussion of the fascinating Al-Ma'mun by focusing on his legacy and the crucial and fraught subject of succession. Here on The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.